You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. <laughs> yes, this afternoon's Bible reading is from John 18, uh, verses 1 to 11. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, "'Who is it you want?' Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And again he asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of, the, one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Thanks, Alex, for moving the back a touch. Uh, well, it's good to be back this Sunday. It was good for all of you and for me that I wasn't here last Sunday. Uh, I was unwell last Sunday in ways that uh, are best not to be mentioned in public like this. Uh, so, uh, anyway, I'll let you use your imagination. But it's good to be back. Uh, big thanks to Adam for filling in at really short notice. I thought he did a great job uh, preaching from Psalm uh, 29. So that was wonderful. But we're back in John's Gospel. Please have John 18 open if you don't already have it open. There's an outline of my sermon uh, on the welcome card that Alex mentioned earlier. So you can look that up uh, if it's useful for you to follow along with. Uh, but let's pray. Let's ask for God's help uh, as we look at this passage. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather around your word, and we pray that by the power of your spirit, we would have a genuine sense that your word is living and active, and that you really are speaking to us in this moment. Uh, please, Father, help me to be faithful and clear as I handle your word, uh, and help us uh, as a whole uh, to be those people that your word... Uh, uh, says that you esteem are those who tremble at your word and humbly receive it, ready to be changed by it. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think all of us understand uh, that how you respond to someone should be connected to who they are. Pretty basic principle. Uh, if I'm working at home in my office, if you don't know, our house, my office is, is right near the front door. Uh, so I'm kind of the designated uh, parcel picker-upper from the front door. If the doorbell rings and there's a courier at the door, I go to the door uh, to get the parcel. Now, of course, if there's a courier at the door, it'd be really pretty inappropriate for me to greet him or her uh, with a kiss and a hug. 
right? That's just not appropriate for who they are. It's not appropriate, it's not a fitting greeting. On the other hand, if the doorbell rings and it's my mum at the door, it'd be almost inappropriate for me to diss her and not give her a kiss and a hug. Right? Just say, oh, come on in or whatever. Take whatever she's giving me, right? right? How you respond to someone should be connected to who they are. If I go to the football, bear in mind this sermon was prepared for last Sunday, so I'm going to talk about the mighty Melbourne Football Club. A uh, little bit less mighty uh, this last Friday night, but the mighty Melbourne Football Club, I go to see them play and a player walks across in front of me and I think, oh, I'm going to get their autograph. Right? That's a fitting and appropriate response for who they are. Yet, if my son Felix runs into my office, it'd be just a bit weird if I asked him for his autograph. It's just not fitting for who he is, right? How you respond to someone should be connected to who they are. Of course, the problem is we can't always see clearly who someone is. And so our response to them might be a little bit weird or inappropriate or just a bit clunky in some way. I have to say I'm experiencing this uh, all the more as my vision continues to decrease. Uh, maybe some of you have experienced this with me. I'm really sorry if you have, and I'm working hard on being clearer in social situations about exactly how much I can and can't see and trying to remove some of that awkwardness. But maybe some of you, if you're new to DPC, you might have experienced me approaching you and asking you a question or making a comment, and it maybe just felt a little bit clunky, a little bit weird and inappropriate, because I just couldn't see clearly who you are. And so the question maybe would have been more fitting for someone who'd been around at DPC for a while, but it was a bit less fitting for someone who's just new to DPC. I'm sorry if that's you again. Please be gracious to me and I'll keep trying to be clearer about my vision. But you get the point. How you respond to someone, it should be connected to who they are, but sometimes we can't see clearly who someone is. Now, of course, it's a little bit embarrassing, maybe a bit awkward, maybe a bit kind of strange if I don't see clearly who you are and I don't respond to you rightly. You feel a bit weird, I feel a bit weird, okay? But it's a whole other thing if we don't see clearly who Jesus is and therefore don't respond to Jesus rightly. And that has a lot more consequences for our lives. So my big idea for today's passage from John chapter 18, verses 1 to 11, is that when we really see Jesus, when we see him as he really is, we see that he is the Son of God who deserves our willing worship. Right? When, we see, when we really see Jesus, we see that he's the Son of God. That's who he is. And so the only fitting and right and appropriate response is to give him our willing Worship. That's my big idea. So we're going to work through it in sections. If you've got John 18 open, take a look first uh, at verse 1, uh, where we see what I've called the testing and triumph of Jesus. Let's read verse 1 together. Or when I say that, uh, I mean, you know, I don't literally want you to read verse 1, but just scan it with your eyes. Uh, verse 1, when uh, Jesus had finished praying, uh, he left with his disciples uh, and crossed the Kidron Valley, uh, on the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. 
So we had a little break from John's Gospel, but hopefully you can remember in John chapter 17, uh, right at the end of the Passover meal Jesus was sharing with his apostles, uh, he said that really long prayer. John 17, he prayed for his apostles. He also prayed for us, people like us, people who would believe in him through the ministry of his apostles. At the end of that prayer, uh, it's like Jesus wants to get out of the busyness of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem's packed during the Passover festival. Uh, Thousands, tens of thousands of Jewish people flock to Jerusalem. Jesus wants to get out of the busyness of the city. Uh, And yet he also knows that the Jewish people had a custom uh, that you weren't allowed to go too far from the city during the Passover. So he and his apostles... They just leave the city, uh, go across the Kidron Valley onto the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives. And they enter into this garden. In the other Gospels, you might remember, say, in Matthew or in Mark, you can look it up later on, uh, they refer to this garden as the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I didn't know until I was prepping this talk that the word Gethsemane actually means oil press. It's interesting. Here we've got the uh, Mount of Olives. Uh, and and uh, the garden is called Gethsemane, meaning oil press. So, you know, joining the dots, so we don't know for sure, but it seems pretty likely uh, that this garden was a little private olive grove, perhaps enclosed behind a wall of some kind, which is why John says that Jesus and his apostles entered into it. They kind of went through the wall, a gate of some kind, into this garden. And if you look there in verse 2, Uh, John tells us that uh, Jesus and his apostles had spent lots of time in this garden. They'd been there so often that Jesus knew where it was. So it seems that it was probably owned by someone who was a bit of a supporter of Jesus, had plenty of money, enough money to have their own private olive grove, and they gave Jesus and his apostles pretty free access to it uh, during this time when they're in Jerusalem. It's just all by way of a little bit of context, right? It's not actually what I want you to notice in particular about verse 1. I remember in John's Gospel, John chapter 20, verse 31, John tells us exactly what his purpose is in writing his Gospel. John chapter 20, verse 31, he wants us by the time we've finished reading his Gospel to be convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, to believe in him as the Son of God and the Messiah, and therefore to find life through knowing Jesus. So in John chapter 18, verse 1, John gives us two hints that tell us that Jesus really is the Son of God. Two hints that take us back to two stories in the Old Testament. So the first hint takes us back to King David in the Old Testament. You should read this story later on. It starts in 2 Samuel chapter 15, at least this part of King David's story. It ends in 2 Samuel chapter 19. Uh, In 2 Samuel chapter 15, David, who's the king of Israel, uh, in the Old Testament, the king of Israel had the title of being the son of God. Pretty big title, the son of God. You can see that in Psalm 2 or 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, So King David is the son of God. And yet in 2 Samuel 15, his life is under threat. His son Absalom has conspired against him, has taken over the throne. So David is forced to flee Jerusalem. And which way does he flee? David, the son of God, the true king of Israel, flees out of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley and he takes refuge on the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives. 
You can read it later on. That in 2 Samuel 19, after Absalom is killed, David comes back to Jerusalem where he is shown to be the true king of Israel and he reassumes the throne of the king. You see the connection to John chapter 18, verse 1. Jesus is like the ultimate David, the true son of God, are the one whose life is under threat, so he's forced to flee Jerusalem, goes across the Kidron Valley and takes refuge on the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives. But it won't be long before he returns to Jerusalem and everyone will be clear that he is the true king of Israel. He is the son of God, the Messiah, God's chosen and anointed king. That's what John's telling us about Jesus in verse 1. And the second thing he's telling us about Jesus takes us back to the story of Adam. In Genesis chapters 1 to 3, Adam also is described as the son of God. And you might remember that Adam spends time in a different garden, not the garden of Gethsemane, but the garden of Eden. Adam, the first man, had a time of intense testing in the garden of Eden, and he failed that test dismally. It led to tragedy for the human race. Not Jesus, right? Jesus enters into this garden, a different garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus succeeds where Adam fails. He experiences a time of intense testing where he wrestles with the will of his father for his life. And then he commits to doing the will of his father. And it leads to triumph, to his triumph, but also to triumph and salvation for the human race. See, John is telling us Jesus really is the son of God. He's the ultimate Adam. He's the ultimate David. He's the son of God, the Messiah, who deserves our willing worship. That's verse 1. Uh, Then in verse 2 and 3, we see the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. Uh, Let me find uh, where I am in my notes. Uh, Yeah, uh, let's read from verse 2, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. Now Judas, uh, who betrayed Jesus, knew the place, that's the garden, uh, because Jesus had often uh, met there with his disciples. I've said this before, Judas knows exactly where the garden is. Uh, But not just that, he knows that it will be the perfect place to betray Jesus during the Passover. It's outside of the city, away from the busyness, under the cover of darkness, perfect spot for him to betray Jesus and have him arrested. So in verse 3, John continues on, Judas uh, came there guiding a... um, uh, guiding a detachment of soldiers uh, and some officials from the chief priests uh, and the Pharisees. Uh, they were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. So in this verse, we see that both the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities are really keen to have Jesus arrested and to get rid of him uh, for their own reasons. Right? The, the, the detachment of soldiers here is a group of Roman soldiers Uh, They would have been based in Jerusalem during the Passover festival. Uh, I I guess I grew up uh, going to this uh, kind of uh, outdoors kind of play, Easter pageant in Bendigo. It was called the Way of the Cross. And they always had the soldiers who came to arrest Jesus, and there was like four of them. 
And I was like, oh, surely Jesus and his apostles could have taken them, you know? But uh, actually, this detachment of soldiers would have been at least 200, maybe as many as 500 or 600, right? This is a big group of Roman soldiers. And the Romans wanted to get rid of Jesus, at least some of them did, because they saw Jesus as causing a social and political unrest. Particularly, some of them have heard that Jesus, now this I don't think is exactly what Jesus was saying, but they'd heard that Jesus was claiming to be an alternate lord and king to Caesar. So many of them were concerned and they wanted to get rid of Jesus. And the Jewish authorities likewise wanted to get rid of Jesus. Their kind of cover story for wanting to get rid of Jesus was that he was a blasphemer. You remember in John's Gospel, there's this talk about how can Jesus claim to be the very son who's sent from the Father, the one who's equal with the Father and deserves honour and worship like the Father. That's blasphemy. That's the Jewish authorities' cover story. Of course, the real reason they want to get rid of Jesus is that Jesus is exposing just how corrupt they are. He's exposing just how oppressive their leadership is. And so they're worried. They, they feel that their power and authority and control over the people is being threatened. So they want to get rid of Jesus too. And so you see in verse 3 uh, that there's also this group of officials that are sent from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And most likely special Jewish soldiers, they were known as the temple police, uh, who were based in the temple itself. So here we have Judas, he's guiding this big group representing the Jewish and Roman authorities. He guides them out of the city, across the Kidron Valley, they're carrying their torches and their lanterns. No doubt it was a bit of a rocky, stumbling path up the side of the Mount of Olives. He guides them into the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. And then in verses 4 to 8, we see the knowledge and true identity of Jesus. Now take a look at verse 4. John says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Now, I don't know about you, but if you were reading just verses 1 to 3 of John chapter 18... Maybe you would think that this group representing the Jewish and Roman authorities led by Judas, that they were kind of sneaking up on Jesus, that they're going to surprise him, that they've got their plans that Jesus knows nothing about. But that's not what John says, is it? Notice verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him. Jesus is the true son of God. He knows all things. He and his father put into plan uh, their mission before the world began. We've seen repeatedly throughout John's Gospel that Jesus knew from the very beginning that Judas was going to betray him. Right? It's no, these guys aren't sneaking up on Jesus. They're not surprising him. Jesus knows everything that's going to happen to him. It's actually Jesus who's in control. He went to this garden to finally wrestle out the plan that he and his father had agreed on. Father, I'm feeling confronted with the suffering that's before me at the cross, the cup that we're going to come to later in this passage. He says to his father in the other Gospels, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Jesus has wrestled with his father and he's finally committed to carrying out the plan 
that he and his father have agreed to. It's not that the Jewish and Roman authorities are in control. Jesus is in control. And we see that in this passage. Jesus isn't hiding away, you know, waiting for these authorities to come and find him, hiding up in a tree or something. You know, like Jesus comes out to meet them. And he asks them. They come to question him, but he questions them. Who is it that you've come for? In verse 5, the crowd replies, we've come for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. If you've been journeying through John's gospel with us, you probably remember that those words, I am, are really important in John's gospel. Really, those seven I am sayings in John's gospel, John chapter 6, you can look them up later on. John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. John chapter 10, there's two I am's, twice the fun. I am the gate and I am the good shepherd, the one that uh, Tim mentioned earlier when we sang King of Love. John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth and the life. John chapter 15, I am the true vine. But these uh, kind of I am, these two words I am, are really significant in John's gospel, which makes me think that when Jesus says, I am he, he's not just saying, yeah, that's me. You know, just identifying himself. You know, you want Jesus of Nazareth? Yep, that's me. I think there's actually a deeper meaning here. Remember the context, the context of those seven I am sayings and the context of what John wants us to believe about Jesus. He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, God's chosen and anointed King, the one who's come to establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. But not just that, he also wants us to believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the Son of God who's the second person of the Trinity, the one who God the Father sent into the world to give his life on the cross. So in that context, Jesus says, I am he. What's he saying? He's saying, yes. Yes, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. You might know my father, Joseph. I'm the son of Joseph the carpenter up in Nazareth. But I'm not just that. I'm also the son of God. I'm the eternal son of God. I am the great I am who has always existed. That name I am that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. The God who has always existed, who has life in himself. I am the great I am, Jesus is saying, who has taken on human form. Now we don't know whether anyone in the crowds actually understood that that's what Jesus was saying. Maybe they were just confronted by Jesus being so bold and coming out to meet them. Maybe some of them did understand us, but notice what happened in verse 6. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Uh, This verse is a little bit ironic um, in that these soldiers uh, came out to arrest Jesus at least in part because he was claiming that he was worthy of the same honour and praise and worship as God the Father. To honour Jesus the Son is to honour the Father. Jesus has said that a number of times. 
And yet here, when they finally meet Jesus, what do they do? They fall to the ground in a posture of humble worship. It's not that they've seen clearly who Jesus is, I don't think, at least not for most of them. I don't think it's willing worship from what follows. It's like an involuntary response to being confronted with the glory and greatness of Jesus. So in verses 7 and 8, the crowds, maybe you can imagine, kind of Roman soldiers, kind of, whose sword is this? Whose, you know, shield is that? Where's my torch? It's gone out. You know, like they're kind of sprawling around on the ground. Jesus asks them again, uh, who is it that you want? And he confirms again, I am he. Right, what does John want us to see about Jesus? He wants us to see who Jesus really is. To see that Jesus is the Son of God the Messiah. Jesus is the eternal son of God, the great I am who took on human form, God himself in flesh, the son of God who's worthy of our willing worship. And in verses 8 and 9, we get a glimpse of Jesus' deep love and care for his people. Now take a look there in verse 8. Jesus says, uh, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. Uh, this happened, John tells us, so that the words uh, that Jesus had spoken would be fulfilled. Uh, I have not lost one of those who you gave me. Uh, we've seen a lot in recent weeks, particularly from the start of John chapter 13, uh, that Jesus knows that he's not going to be long in this world. It's time for him to return to his father. And the journey back to his father is going to go via the cross. He'll be lifted up on the cross before he's lifted up to his father's presence again. And so Jesus knows that being betrayed and arrested and tried and crucified is all a part of the father's plan for him, the plan that they have agreed to together. But that's not part of God's plan right now for his apostles. Jesus knows that too. Until the very end, Jesus is absolutely committed in his great love and care for his apostles to protecting them, to keeping them safe. He knows that this is the will of his father too, which is what's quoted. These words here are quoted from John chapter 6, verse 39, where Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me. That's the will of God, his father, who sent him into the world. The will of God the Father is that Jesus should lose none of all those that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. Again, Jesus is the Son of God who knows all things. He knows all that was about to happen to him, and he knows that what his apostles were about to do. He said a couple of chapters ago, all of you are going to scatter me, so don't be so bold with your declarations of faith and commitment to him. Like Jesus knows that his apostles are very soon going to deny him and desert him and disown him, all of them. They're weak and frail and full of all sorts of doubts, just like us. He knows that. And yet Jesus also knows that before the world began, John 6 verse 39 his father gave the apostles to him in all their weakness and mess and brokenness. And just as the father, if you're a Christian, gave you to Jesus 
in all your weakness and mess and brokenness. And Jesus here says, I am absolutely committed to not losing any of those that the Father has given me. I love them, I care for them, and even when their grip on me is loose, I will hold on to them and I will raise them up on the last day. This is Jesus' deep love and care for his apostles, for us. Finally, in verses 10 and 11, uh, we come to the crown and the cross of Jesus. In verse 10, uh, John tells us, Then Simon Peter, uh, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, from my perspective, you might think that's pretty courageous of Peter, maybe stupid, like here he is in a group of 12 facing hundreds of soldiers. He has a lot of confidence in Jesus' power, right? But it's very clear that Jesus thinks Peter's actions are a bit ignorant, or at least misguided. But straight away, Jesus tells Peter, put away your sword, In Luke's gospel, Luke tells us, because Luke's a doctor, he's very interested in the medical side of things. So he tells us that Jesus actually heals Malchus's ear. Jesus is being really clear. No, 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 Peter, what you're doing here in getting out your sword is wrong. Why is Peter, what's Peter got wrong here? He hasn't got it wrong that Jesus is God's king. Peter's come to believe that Jesus is the son of God, the Messiah, Jesus is God's chosen and anointed king. Peter is absolutely convinced of that. But what he has got wrong is the nature of Jesus' kingdom. He thinks Jesus' kingdom is a political kingdom that is primarily about overthrowing evil and oppressive political authorities like these Roman and Jewish authorities that are represented here. And it's all going to be done in a great battle by the power of the sword. That's what Peter thinks about God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' crown. But Jesus says, no. My kingdom is primarily a spiritual kingdom to be established by overthrowing evil and oppressive spiritual authorities, sin and Satan and death. And it's going to happen not by the power of the sword, but by the power of the cross. And it's that cross that Jesus refers to in verse 11. And when he says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, a number of times, this image of the cup is used consistently uh, to speak about God's righteous and pure and holy anger against the sin of human beings, of people like us. Now, we're not, uh, most of us prefer to put ourselves in the kind of good camp rather than the sin camp. We kind of identify some really bad people, like those are the, those are the sinful people and, and we're the, the good ones. But I guess in simple terms, what the Bible means by sin, uh, you could use the word autonomy. Not the best sense of the word autonomy. It's right for any of us to want a bit of independence, a bit of autonomy. But the word autonomy is actually made up of two Greek words. The word auto means self, and the word nomos means rule or law. And this is the heart of what the Bible's talking about when it's talking about sin. 
He's saying all of us have a heart where the default settings are that we want self-rule rather than God rule. We want to throw off the shackles of God's oppressive rule because we think life would be better if we were in control. If we were little kings and queens of our own life, that's the heart of sin. And this cup in the Old Testament is a picture, in the New Testament indeed here, of God's righteous anger against our determination, our proud and stubborn determination to throw off God's rule. And so in Psalm 75, verses 7 and 8, we read these words. It is God who judges, the psalmist says. He brings down one and he exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup. The cup is full of foaming wine mixed with spices. The Lord pours out the cup and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. It's a pretty pretty full-on picture, isn't it? A full-on picture of God's righteous anger, his wrath, against all the wickedness and sinfulness of humanity. So what's Jesus saying in John chapter 18, verse 11, when he says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father's given me? I think he's saying to Peter, you don't quite get it. Put your sword away. My kingdom's not going to be established by the power of the sword. It'll be established by the power of the cross. And let me give you a hint on why the cross is so powerful. It's not because it's a great example of sacrificial love. It is that. The, the, The cross is so powerful because it's at the cross that Jesus drinks the cup that the Father has given him. It's at the cross that Jesus absorbs, as God himself, every last drop of God's righteous anger against your sin and my sin. As the psalmist said, he drinks it down to the dregs, every bit at the cross. So the great assurance, if you're a Christian, is if you believe in Jesus Uh, There is absolutely none of God's anger and wrath left for you. There's nothing left of that cup to drink. The only cup you get to drink from is the one that's full of God's love and grace and mercy to those who've believed in Jesus. But this is the crown of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus, that is established through the cup that he drinks. I wonder how... As you sit here this afternoon, how do you see Jesus? I wonder if you see Jesus as John wants you to see him, or maybe you see Jesus in some other way. That's really important to work out, isn't it? Because, as I said at the start, uh, how you respond to someone will be determined by how you see them, by who they are, who they really are. So if, like the Jewish authorities, you mainly see Jesus as uh, someone who's exposing your darkness, who's showing you just how corrupt you are on the inside, who's threatening the power and control that you'd like to have over your own life, if that's how you see Jesus, then you'll want to get rid of him. You want to tune him out, push him away, 
you certainly won't want to worship him. If you see Jesus as someone who's causing social and political unrest, like at least some of the Roman authorities did, again, you won't want to worship Jesus. You'll want to get rid of him. You'll be one of those people. It's like a life would be better, society would be better if we could just get Jesus out of our schools. Like get him out of our parliament. Get him out of our policy. Get rid of Jesus. He's the problem. If you see Jesus as a great moral teacher of history, you might admire his teachings in the Bible. You might try to put some of them into practice. But in the end, that won't bring you to worship Jesus because Jesus' moral teachings are really demanding. You'll actually resent Jesus for setting the bar too high. You think that he's giving you a list of rules to tick off. That's not what he's doing at all. If you only see Jesus as a great moral teacher, you won't worship Jesus. If you see Jesus as one of the great leaders of history, someone who shaped the past like many other leaders, you'll probably relate to Jesus as a bit of an intellectual curiosity, as if you're looking at him like an exhibit in a museum. You'll love Jesus, you'll find him interesting, but you won't fall to the ground and worship Jesus. That's a weird thing to do in a museum, right? But how you see Jesus will dictate how you respond to him. Of course, the risk is that you're not seeing Jesus clearly. And so your response to him is a bit weird and clunky and inappropriate. Like giving a courier a kiss and a hug. It just doesn't quite fit. Asking a toddler for an autograph, you see. It's not fitting for who they are. I wonder if your response to Jesus is fitting for who he is. When you really see Jesus, what do you see? You see that he's the son of God. You see that he's the son of God who was willing to give his life for you on the cross. Who was willing to drink the cup of God's anger against your sin and my sin down to its very dregs. So that you can drink of his overflowing cup of love and grace and mercy and compassion, not just today, for forever. When you see Jesus like that, you'll see that the only fitting response is to worship him. It's the only response that makes sense, that's appropriate. When you really see Jesus, you'll see that he's the son of God who deserves our willing worship. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that this day, by the power of your spirit, you might have opened our eyes uh, for the first time. Uh, or for the thousandth time, to really see Jesus, your son. Uh, To see that he is indeed your son, uh, your chosen and anointed king. Uh, The one who established your kingdom by being lifted up on the cross and in so doing, drinking the cup of your anger against our sin. uh, That we might drink now and forever of your love and grace and mercy to us in him. Father, may we see Jesus clearly and therefore worship him as he deserves. In his name we pray. Amen.